90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing good. Avoiding all these storms that seem to be in your neck of the woods. Yep, as always, we're gearing up for severe weather season. It's first spring here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Already found my first snake. <gasps> Already oh. had to mow. <laughs> I know your feelings on snakes. <laughs> I have a snake hook. That's impressive. I get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, um, what was it? You didn't bother to ask it. <laughs> it was just a, it was just a plain, you know, it was a black with the yellow striped garter snake. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But it was larger than any snake I've seen in recent years. Like mm. most of the time I find little six or eight inch guys. This is about a foot and a half. So mm. was it one of those scary situations where you're moving something and it was curled up underneath it? No, I was opening a gate. Oh, okay. And it was over kind of coming under the fence okay that's not too bad then (laughs) last year we saw quite a few rattlesnakes out of camp so i'm interested to see what this year brings in terms of snakes i'm not interested i'd prefer not to see any rattlesnakes but (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah we also had a very enthusiastic herping group at camp and so they would bring me snakes which was fun oh I remember down by the uh, river there in town. Yeah. We'd gone in and got dinner, and I found a snake and had picked it up and was terrifying people with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's fun to do. My mother did that yep. to me as a child. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. That's, um, that's about where we're at. It's been a fairly non-eventful week, and so I'd like to keep it that way. Yeah, and you know we're actually getting ready to start on a pretty exciting project here. That is all I can say right now is it is a very non-traditional flume for a customer. Mm, non-traditional. I'm sure we will have a show on it after it's out. That's that's very interesting because all flumes are just like a line. So I'm super excited to hear what a non-traditional flume is like. Uh, this one's a big box, and it has very little water involved. Hmm. So. Even more intrigued. <laughs> okay. All right. You hooked me. I'll keep coming back till you tell me what it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, I was just actually on a on a call about that, and had been thinking a lot about flumes and water. Uh, also, because I've discovered that there are sections of the new land that we have that hold significant amounts of water. <laughs> Yes, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about water, and then there was a video that Grady over at Practical Engineering put out a few weeks ago uh, talking about stream tables and erosion. And I thought, you know, we've talked some about streams and their meandering and the results of that. Mm-hmm. But we, we haven't have. ever really talked about the fundamentals of stream dynamics, which are captured in this thing called Lane's balance or Lane's equation. So this is really interesting to me because I had not heard of Lane's equation. 
Um, and I teach a lot, lot, lot about rivers. And so it's interesting to me as to whether this is, well, we'll get into that. We'll get into why maybe. It's an arbitrary relationship. So, you know, it came from engineering. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly where I wanted to say. <laughs> but I would let the I'll more. I'll take the hate mail for Great. that. Great. <laughs> the more engineering inclined person can say it. <laughs> Uh huh. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It is sort of arbitrary, and I think that we don't talk about it because, like, we talk about how this the parts of Lane's equation, like how they interact all the time, anyway. And there's a lot more that goes along with that. And I think this is just like the engineering pared down version of like rivers for dummies. <laughs> I don't know about that. Not rivers for dummies. It's like the, it's only like a small amount of the of what's going on. That's what I mean. Like, it's the little piece that you you know you can take. There's a whole bunch more about like velocities and depth and all that jazz, you know. And so this Lane's equation seems to me it's like, if I simmer it down to what's really important, like give me the important details. Here it is. These four things. So. You're not in the same room as me, but I'm going to duck anyway when I say this. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I'm going to make the argument that we don't even know the parameters in Lane's equation well enough for it to be better than order of magnitude. So all that other stuff is third and fourth order nonsense. <laughs> you know, I can't, I'm not going to argue that. I agree with this. <laughs> <laughs> is it important? Yeah. Can we figure out what it would do to the balance? Sure. Are we ever going to know it well enough to actually... Probably not. No. No, I absolutely agree with it. <laughs> Maybe that's why I like rivers. They're also not an exact science. <laughs> it's true. And did you know about these Fisk maps that he talked about? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I show pictures of these in class all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're maps of all the Mississippi's historical channels, and mm -hmm. uh, there's some pretty interesting content out there as well about, uh, you know, the Mississippi tried to divert into the Atchafalaya. Mm -hmm. It sure did. I just lectured about this like a week ago. It's like you were you were listening. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm, we like, do this hmm. a scary amount of the time. Uh, it's super disturbing. <laughs> uh, so... And, you know, we built this big engineering structure that almost failed in, what was it, the 70s? Uh, yeah, it was 72 or 3, and it almost failed, and so there was this big flood, and it. <laughs> this is my favorite part of that story, um, that, you know, they're sitting there, and the dam is shaking, and this whole facility is about to blow. If they get any more water, the, the Mississippi is going to do this word that we talk about when we talk about river systems, that it's going to evulse. It's going to change course. Um, and so it didn't, obviously, or else we'd all hear about it in history books. It didn't evolve, but it was very close. And so when the flood waters are receding and they are like, okay, we need to see, <laughs> we need to go in and see how bad whatever was going on under this dam was. And they lower this, <laughs> lower this like camera down this borehole to see how the dam is doing to like look at the dam and all they see are fish and they're supposed to be like in a borehole inside the dam. <laughs> and so, <laughs> like it eroded so much that it was 
like 20 feet, I think it was like 19 or 22 feet is all that was left her road in this huge structure and the Mississippi would have changed course. And taken the economy with it. Yeah. Yeah. And a, a ton of lives and everything, because as you probably know, even if you just looked at a map, we are keeping the Mississippi where it is. It wants to move pretty badly due to a lot of these things we'll talk about in Lane's equation. Um, and it can't. The earth is lazy. It wants to do the least amount of work possible. It's actually a lot of work keeping the Mississippi in those banks because it has so much sediment that's being deposited there that we've changed the slope of the river, one of the parts of Lane's equations, and it wants to move. So we continually have to dredge it and keep it in place. And we do that for just what you said, John, for the economy. Right, because a lot of our global or a lot of our food production that goes out globally travels down the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And not only that, you know, we have a lot of oil and gas um, that's coming in and out of that port too, not as much as Houston, but still quite a bit um, through there and through New Orleans as well. Right. So Lane's equation, well, where did this thing come from? And it's not, equation might be generous. Yes. It's a relationship. Uh, you also find a lot with you look at Lane's balance and I think that the graphic of Lane's balance is one of the more educational ways that you could present a term analysis of an equation and we should do it more yeah I could see that I imagine just up and down arrows in my head but yes I could totally see that Uh, so Lane well this guy named Emery Lane back in the 50s, worked for the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation and got so involved studying streams that he decided he didn't like people telling him what to do. So what did he do? (laughs) He quit and became a professor. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Don't attack me like that. (laughs) So... Uh, it's okay. I started a business, so nobody told me yeah, what to do, so I, I get it. Same exact thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, he became a professor at Colorado State, and he had been working in hydraulic labs for the Bureau, and had been working on, this sounds so grand, I love it, the <laughs> Unified Theory of Sediment Transport. Ah, <laughs> There's no wormholes at the end of that one. But there are actual actual wormholes. Just kidding. <laughs> right. And in 1955, he published this paper with this equation in quotes. Uh, yes. And it was his theory of what makes rivers... The, the ultimate thing we care about is are they depositing or are they eroding? Well... The ultimate thing engineers care about. <laughs> well, even in geoscience, and you know, to the the scientist, right? Of is this trying to move this way or that way? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. I'll give you that. Okay. Yeah. So the graphic is a balance, you know, like a beam balance, and the center pivot either pivots the needle towards deposition or erosion. Okay. And then on each arm of the balance, we have these other terms. And then on the plate, 
that is hanging from that arm, we have another term. So the terms are sediment size, sediment volume, stream slope, and flow. Mm-hmm. All of these things have to change to put the river in equilibrium. No deposition, no erosion. That's what we're trying to get to. Right. Is nature. Because, because the earth is lazy. Now, we never get there, ever. Correct. <laughs> because stuff always happens. It, yep. You exactly. think about a small stream, it could be something as simple as a beaver builds a dam, and that just threw off your whole equation. The entire thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Or somebody put a culvert in, or made a road, or added a parking lot, or there was a fire, or... <laughs> so many things. So many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and each of these things, you know, you change one in order to try to achieve that balance. You have to change something else, right? In the case of the Mississippi, we've got our finger on the balance. Yeah, yeah, we're we're waiting it pretty heavily. You seen that picture of the guy in the airport that has his suitcase on the scale and he's holding it up with his foot? (laughs) You think I have been with people who have done that? Amazing. When you're bringing back a lot of rocks from somewhere, you got to do what you can. (laughs) So that's that's what we're doing to the Mississippi, one hundred percent for sure, for sure. But I mean, these things are the main things that are acting just like you said john on any size of moving water in a channel system that we have right and i think the easiest thing to do is first just go through them one by one and not talk about any interactions let's just do a single single term perturbation analysis (laughs) bring back your meteorology days Oh, so exciting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, sediment size. What happens if we make the sediment finer? So, if you're going to make fine sediments, um, now we've talked about Hulstrom's diagram, and this is where I say this is the, like, reverse for dummies, because, you know, if sediment's super fine, it's still hard to pick up. But in general, finer sediments are easier to move, And also something they don't talk about, they move within the water column, not along the bottom. So you need, I won't say less water, but less velocity, less energy to move a bunch of fine sediments. And they usually float along through the water column for quite a ways. Versus if you have really big sediments, those are generally rolling along the bottom. You have to have a lot of energy to move them or else they just stay there. And then they can do all kinds of weird things to the channel if they're just sitting there not moving so assuming we hold everything else constant deposition or erosion mm-hmm. oh if you're adding sediment oh well, sorry no, sediment no if size. we're changing the sediment size to fine yeah oh going from fines okay i got you um so trying to think if you just dump like, a lot, we or, have a, no, you have all fine sediments. That's probably right. more, I would say that's not eroding. No, it is. So no, it is because you're moving them. Fine, you're yeah. moving them. Yep. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So for the same flow, easier the same slope, everything like that, easier to move. So yes. you're road. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
now what you were hinting at is what if you put more sediment in? You leave the sediment size distribution alone, but you add more sediment to the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, now you've got an imbalance on that side, right? So now you're depositing because you have more of it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so you now have to if change we go over the other to get rid of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now if we go to the other arm of the balance, what are the things on the other side of the equation? So sediment size and sediment volume are on one side of the equation. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the equilibrium is stream slope and volume. Right. So if you add a lot of sediment, right, you have to add more water to take care of that if you want to balance out that equation or you have to change the slope, which is the most interesting one for me. Yeah, so you can add more water or go to a steeper slope, which would change the velocity, Yep, as you exactly. alluded to earlier, but that's sort of hidden in here. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. That's what I'm saying. This is like the base level of the stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and slope is interesting, too. because Well, the slope is the most interesting thing because that's how you change a river, right? Rivers don't just flow in a straight line, and it's due to a lot of factors, but because of the interaction of these four things, that's why they don't just flow in a straight line and friction, but I digress. <laughs> right, and same thing, if you added more water, that also tips the balance towards erosion. I think that one makes a lot of sense intuitively. Floods. yep. Mm-hmm. For sure. So, but now you think about, okay, you said rivers don't flow in a straight line. Well, if we made a straight line river, mm-hmm. the chances of this balance being satisfied are roughly zero because we know it's never satisfied anyway. Yes. But a lot of times a straight line is just too steep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's why we get all these meanders in rivers is we need to increase the length of the river. So the gradient, because remember mathematically... What is slope? It's rise over run. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if that run has all kinds of curves in it or not. It's still longer, so yep. the slope is less. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you have to think about this on a bunch of different scales. You have to think about this on the length of the river in general. But you also have to think about, because this is what makes rivers move ultimately, you know, you have to think about, you know, the slope of what's going on in the bed itself, right? Because if you pile up enough sediment, you're not going to be going downhill anymore. And that's what the river's going to want to change directions because it has too much sediment. It's like a big mound, right? So in this case, slope, I'm thinking of it like topography, inside the river so it's not just the whole system it's also like immediately in the channel too which is cool to think about and so they have to the river wants to be lazy it wants to minimize its energy and so it has to move out of that situation to return that lane's balance closer to balanced in this case if the slope gets out of whack Right. And you can even think about it if we put a dam in the river. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what's that doing? That's taking our velocity way down. Mm -hmm. 
and we're going to dump a lot of sediment there. And that's why we have to dredge all these things all the time. Right, exactly. So you can naturally produce sediment and basically create a sediment dam or man. Yeah, with an actual dam, you're going to be even more doing those things that create that imbalance within that equation, which, you know, ultimately most dams left alone are going to fail because nature says, no, 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 we're going to get back to this balance at some point. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. So. And in this video that Grady did, he had, uh, he'd gone and visited M River, which makes these really cool stream tables. And he had some really cool time lapses. And I loved the subtle, in one of his, he said, well, the sediment that they use, the different particle sizes are colored differently. He has, he goes, which online video compression loves. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've got all these little different colored particles next to each other. It's so funny because it's like, I think that <laughs> it's, they did that. And so when you're running, this just, so we have an M River table. Um, it just broke today. <laughs> My students are doing this. Oh man. <laughs> Even funnier that you wanted to do this. And you're like, look at these cool things. And I'm like, oh yes, we have one of these. Um, it's a project in my sedimentary petrology class is playing with these rivers and answering all these questions that we're just going over right now. So heads up. I know some of you guys listen to me. Here's all the answers to your project. <laughs> Draw lanes balance. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so these in river tables have this media in them, which is insanely expensive. I understand why I'm just saying the media is the cost of the table as well. Like you could buy just the empty table and then the same price for a bag, the bags of media that go along with it. But they're all the same size, which, you know, isn't true in a river system. So how do you study that? You make them different densities and different colors. So now you can track them. And also you can use a singular sized mesh net to catch them all as they come out of the river at the bottom. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the key right there. They're all the same size, so everything's getting caught. There's nothing weird happening. You don't have to buy some weird net to catch them with. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, I I thought the media was very cool, though it didn't come across great on the video. Yeah, it does. So you can get all different colors, which is even more fun um, <laughs> for these, depending on what you want. So we had. We got four different densities with our, um, with our table, and you can really see as you let these stream tables go, you know, where you're getting deposition and erosion of certain sizes within the river. You know, and on this lanes balance, it's like said size and volume are all sort of one thing, but you can see how that affects it, these fines versus the coarse ones um, in the case of letting these letting these streams go. Um, these M River tables, if anyone has been to GSA, it is the most popular booth there. <laughs> 100%. So, yeah. They have huge tables. They have small tables. They have everything in between. And they bring all the toys to the Geological Society of America meeting. And we had um, one of our friends that we've interviewed on the show, Dr. Mike Malaska. He's at JPL. Um, 
he studies Jupiter. He and I actually played at one of these tables for like half an hour and were told that the, the, um, show was closing and we needed to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they're, they're super neat, but they're, what's cool about these in river tables, this is not an advertisement, but it sort of is, I guess, is that you can have them for like outreach and things like that. They're super fun. Everyone loves to play in them. You become a kid instantly when you start to play in these river tables. Um, but also they're set up to be like research quality tables. Um, there is a researcher is at Tulane and they have a huge river. It's not an M river system, but M river systems can do this too. And they let these huge tables go and they do this photography. Like we were looking at in the, um, in the video we watched before, they do this high speed photography and stuff, but you can also set up a LIDAR above it and have it scanning and like build the architecture of the river system over time, which is super cool. Right. Yeah. That's really fun. And I've seen one interesting variation on this, which was looking at river ocean interactions and they had the entire table on electric actuators that would tip it and yes. simulate tide. Uh-huh. Yeah. But that... this table was the size of a building. I mean, it, uh-huh. it was huge. Uh, but it was a very cool additional complication that's certainly not in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen ones that instead of the table moving, having, um, like, different waves, creating, being able to create, like, wave heights to talk about, like, the intertidal zone and stuff like that too yeah so there's lots of cool things you can do with rivers and river tables yes stream tables are the coolest thing and i can't imagine like how many students that we've shown um stream tables to who like remember that you know way later on and are like oh my gosh this was great um (laughs) you buy these in river tables and they talk about in here too and so this is something that's not in the equation that changes things a lot which is vegetation um because if you have vegetation it helps to stabilize sediments big or small and so there's this barrier that it doesn't care about lanes balance. Cause if there's a tree there, that's got all the sediment. Mm. No, I'm going to say it's in there because sediment volume is one of the terms. And if you've got vegetation, <laughs> it's decreasing sediment volume. I guess fine. <laughs> We're going to fight you over scientists this equation. Sp- splitting every term into 16 terms when you don't know the magnitude of the first term anyway. Exactly. Good Lord. We're going to fight about this equation forever. I already feel it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but like the in river tables, they have these little plastic trees and you're like, this is going to do nothing. Like, what is this little plastic tree going to do? And it's crazy how just sticking one little plastic tree, how it takes that sediment volume that would normally be in the system, how it takes it out because it stabilizes it. I think that's one of the things that everyone is always shocked about, like how little vegetation it takes to stabilize like the banks of a river. And given that it's generally nice and wet on the banks of a river, there's a lot of vegetation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially in fine grained river systems for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
No, I don't know. This was just an interesting, you know, this video came out. I generally watch most of the practical engineering videos when they come out at some point. And uh, I just thought this was a neat way to look at a river system and a yeah. look at a cool classroom tool that a lot of people probably don't know exists. Yeah. It, yeah, it really is. And, you know, not to say you have to buy an M-River. You can make a stream table for pretty cheap. Um, it's not as elegant as the M-River systems, but it's super easy to understand this balance if you're just physically touching these things and doing this. You can put a hose on it, and you can turn the hose up and down, and then you've changed, you know, your quantity of water. You can dump sediment at the at the head of that river, change your quantity of sediment. You could change your sediment size if you, you can just do it with dirt from your backyard and see how all these things will change and how the slope changes to accommodate these other changes that you could pretty easily make in the river. Yeah, and one of my favorite things to watch videos of these M River tables doing was when you just cut the straight path in. You're like, nope, here we are. Like, straight line from A to B, this has to be the most efficient way. And then watching it evolve into a very natural meandering or even sometimes braided stream. Like, super quickly. (laughs) Because it says, no, that may be the shortest (laughs) path, but that does not satisfy Lane's balance. Yeah. (laughs) I don't like this. We're going to do this instead. That is exactly right. Yeah. Um, our So our pump quit on our table. It's been going for, I mean, it's a workhorse. It's been 10 years at least that we've had it going. And uh, today it just gave up the ghost. And I thought the students were going to cry who were working on it. And they said, we only got one meander so far. <laughs> I was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> You tell them to get some buckets and form a line. I keep going exactly like four slower. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was pretty heartbreaking. But I have um, I've worked with them before, and they're super, you know, fast on getting in touch with you. So hopefully, we'll be back back in business very soon. <laughs> uh, very nice. Well, yeah. No, I just like I thought that would be a fun thing to talk about. I did not know you were talking about it in class right now, but there you go. Once again, <laughs> we're gonna you did we're gonna write that. another lecture for you. Yeah, you knew it on a deep cellular level. That's uh, yeah, that's how why you did this. Um, I will. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna go back and say I wish I had said that EM River would get back to me quick as a flash. Oh. <laughs> Well, in that case, it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Dude, this paper is amazing. Yep. Thanks, Daryl. Uh, oh my gosh. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, man. He just sent a great paper in the email today that took 20 minutes of my time that was very well spent. Uh, I didn't know there was a nature photonics, but I'm guessing you probably did. Yeah, uh, <laughs> because you know what they publish in Nature Photonics? Oh, no. What? Lasers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man, this one has <laughs> all the things for you. It hits all the buttons. It's got lasers. It's got lightning. It's got high-speed photography. High speed it's got photography. electric field measurement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I assumed that you got this paper and then immediately went to build 
one of these lightning capturing lasers. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've seen where we moved our shop now. Uh, I oh, have a yeah. giant 320 foot lightning rod next door. So exactly. So now you can set up one of these lasers right next to it and recreate this exact experiment. <laughs> yes. And this is such an awesome experiment. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they found this radio tower high on a hill, this Swiss tower that's, uh, I don't remember the exact height, but relatively tall. Mm-hmm. And they put a, what everybody wants to have, <laughs> a high repetition terawatt laser. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 124 terawatt. meter high tower, by the way. Ah, uh, Okay. Yeah, it's a big boy. And they put this laser by it, and over the course of a thunderstorm that lasted, I think it was six hours. Uh, um, it was six hours over four days or something like that, I think, wasn't it? it was something yeah, so we may not be able to call it the same storm. Same storm system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they pulse this laser about a thousand times a second, and they were actually able to create plasma leaders that the lightning took the path of least resistance, which was the plasma that was already there, and they were able to direct the lightning with the laser. How cool is that? (laughs) So the lightning was already going to happen. Right. But they were just able to channel it to where they wanted it to go, which lightning rods do, but lightning rods are a real pain because they protect an area that's as big as they are tall. Right. So you got... A little tiny lightning rod, and that doesn't do a ton. Yeah, that's why you see a bunch of little rods around a, the top of a building. There's a bunch of them because if they're two feet tall, you're getting a two-foot radius circle. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know what? When I first read this, too, when I was reading that abstract, and I was like, Franklin rods. I'm like, oh, man. We're going to have to learn about who did that. And I was like, oh, wait. That's Ben Franklin. <laughs> that, that's Ben Franklin. Yes. That, was the, that is the state of the art of lightning protection right now. Yeah. Unbelievable. Okay, so these people aren't, we didn't even say this, the name of the paper was Laser Guided Lightning, um, by 19 different people. It's maybe right. more than 19. <laughs> right? This is a lot of At all, at all. Yeah, this is Hard a very all. NASA e-paper. But these aren't the first people, even though this is from um, 2023. These aren't the first people who have done this. Did you look at this reference of the use of laser to trigger lightning did you look at what the title of that paper was no what is it from 1974 the title of this paper by ball which is even funnier l ball lightning ball uh the laser (laughs) lightning rod system thunderstorm domestication (laughs) (laughs) i thought that was fantastic That's pretty great. (laughs) Yeah, really good. So it's like this has been an idea since the 70s. That's a long time ago. Yeah, we just couldn't make terawatt lasers. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And this laser is not small. It's, you know, the size of an SUV. Mm -hmm. Uh, But where do we need to protect from lightning where we can't have tall towers? Mm -hmm. Well, one comes to mind real easy is an airport. Right. Exactly. You can't have tall towers, but they do have to bring ramp crews in during storms and your flight gets delayed. Mm-hmm. 
I but mean, if we had this giant network of terawatt lasers around the airport, maybe they could just be working surrounded by lightning right. safely. Ex- yeah, this is so cool. I mean, it took me a little... I read a bunch of it twice because it's... you Using these pulses, these like picosecond pulses or whatever, to heat up the air so much to like turn it into plasma and then the lightning's like yes i'll take that path there's no electrons in my way now that's unbelievable so i guess i I didn't know this i'm sure you did that they before you know this actually worked even though they've been trying the lasers for a while um that they would use these wire guided rockets yeah so model (laughs) rockets with a little thin copper wire and they would shoot them up and the wire would spool out behind the rocket connected to ground and lightning would see this low resistance path to ground and strike it and vaporize the wire in the rocket (laughs) they could get lightning to strike on target i didn't think that a weak thing was like they were like lasers are better because that rocket's gonna fall down it might hurt someone (laughs) it's like (laughs) lasers are just better you don't have to quantify (laughs) (laughs) well and you know this you can leave it running and lightning that's going to happen is channeled versus the rocket you're trying to trigger lightning right exactly yeah um Um, i thought the coolest part gosh i don't even want to say this the coolest part of this was the high speed photography capturing the morphology of the laser induced lightning versus regular lightning and then they compare it to these rocket induced lightnings because People have clearly done high-speed photography with those. And how, like, the laser-induced lightning, the paths are not straight because of all the electron interactions of the laser and the air isn't creating this straight filament like you are if you have the actual, like, you know, wire attached to something or at the actual, you know, straight uh, Franklin rod. I thought that was so cool that you could see that on this high speed photography that there's still like a natural waver in the lightning, even though it's clearly following the path of the laser. Right. And real neat. I liked my favorite part was the VHF interferometer results. Mm hmm. Yeah. Where you can see the time evolution of the stroke. And they have the path of laser plotted, and it's very clear that all of the VHF sources just line up down this beam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so cool. That is awesome. So, I mean, there's a paucity of data with this study, but clearly it made it into nature photonics. And so this is a, oh my gosh, this worked. Let's get it out there, and then let's like keep doing it, right? And they yeah, and I saw some that. news reports that some of the newscasters really were sensationalizing this and interviewing different experts, subject matter experts. And one of them said, "Well, you know, this is a great first step. This is the first time we've been able to do this successfully. It probably is about a decade or maybe two away from practical implementation." Mm-hmm. And man, you could just see that newscaster feel like somebody set him up on this story. 
Because <laughs> they basically said, like, without having time to process, they were like, well, what use is it then? Yeah. Yeah. You can see the person be like, no, like, you don't understand. Yeah. This we finally crazy. were able to guide lightning with a laser. Like, this is <laughs> massive. Massively cool and useful. But no. <laughs> Terawatt lasers aren't on the shelf at the Home Depot. Uh, I mean, they are if you're smart enough, right? No. <laughs> now, at Lowe's, I don't know. but Ace Hardware surely carries them. <laughs> right. It is yeah, the place this... with the helpful hardware, folks. That's right. This this paper was captivating, I will say. <laughs> like This was so cool. Rarely, because I'm a good scientist, rarely do I read the entire thing. <laughs> But I definitely read this entire paper. <laughs> well, and I love that it's 17 pages, but like three of it are content. Yes. And there's a page of references. And then the rest of it is like um, methods. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and which, more figures. <laughs> which are always your favorite ones. But um, yes, these it's so, it's super neat. They're like auxiliary figures are ridiculously awesome. <laughs> Oh, yeah, all these figures, like, they've got all the different measuring equipment that they had shown on the RF spectrum. Yes, that's, that's like, the one oh. that I just had up. I was like, this is so neat. We're measuring all the way from X-rays down to low-frequency radio waves, almost DC with electric field mills. Yes, yeah. This like, is talk about covering the entire super. spectrum super cool and not only that there's photo annotations it doesn't just say what it's doing it they have photo annotations of those sensors how neat is that yeah mm -hmm. yeah this is so an exquisitely written paper which i would expect for nine thousand authors um but it's really good like this is a really cool concept plus a very well written paper with Excellent figures. Yes. So congratulations to that whole team. Uh, I guess you could say it was a shocking discovery. <sighs> On that note. <laughs> On that note. It's time to Shannon, laser if, guide this thing out of here. <laughs> if, if folks have better jokes for me to use. <laughs> he won't use how them. How can they send those in? <laughs> you can send them. <laughs> to a show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. And as always, thank you for supporting us. You can support us too. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.